I'm Tim Briggs, a partner in the Competition, Regulation and Trade team at Herbert Smith Freehills in London. Welcome to our latest podcast on public procurement. Today, we're looking at the UK Procurement Bill, which was recently introduced into Parliament. To discuss this important development, I'm delighted to be joined by Adrian Bray, a consultant in our group who's been advising clients on procurement law for over 25 years. Hi, Tim. Hello, everyone. Adrian, before we scrutinise the bill, it may be helpful to remind listeners briefly of the background. What's the bill all about and how did we get to this point? Well, Tim, the bill is intended to replace the existing UK regulations governing the procurement of goods, works and services by public authorities and some utilities. Public procurement is, of course, a huge market worth billions of pounds every year. The current regulations, such as the Public Contracts Regulations 2015, are based very closely on EU directives. The government sees Brexit as providing an opportunity to replace the EU-based regime with a new, simpler UK measure. To this end, the government issued a green paper in December 2020 entitled Transforming Public Procurement, which puts forward various proposals for reform and invites comments. The government has considered the consultation feedback and has now proposed new legislation in the form of the Procurement Bill. The bill has already received its first and second readings before the House of Lords. It will eventually be enacted as the Procurement Act, which is expected to enter into force at some point in 2023. The bill is a long and complex document running to well over 100 pages, so we will not attempt to go into the detail of the bill during this podcast. Instead, we will highlight and comment on a selection of the bill's key features. One headline feature is that the bill would effectively replace the four existing sets of procurement regulations, namely the Public Contracts Regulations 2015 and the Parallel Regulations for Utilities, Concessions and the Defence Sector. As a result, all of the UK procurement regulations will be found in a single instrument. This consolidation is to be welcomed. However, the bill does leave many points of detail, such as uh, the required content of published notices, uh, to be dealt with in secondary legislation and guidance to be adopted in due course. Reading through the bill, Tim, it's apparent that it covers most of the matters addressed by the current regulations. However, the provisions have been extensively reordered and reworded in a style more typical of UK legislation. The bill introduces also a lot of new tech terminology. For example, the bill uses the term excludable supplier to signify bidders who fall within any of the grounds for discretionary exclusion. The bill also introduces a new term treaty state supplier for bidders from countries with which the UK has a free trade agreement and which therefore enjoy equal access to UK public contracts. Another change in terminology is that contracting authorities will be required to seek the most advantageous tender instead of the most economically advantageous tender. So in short, MAT will replace MEET as the basis for contract awards. The removal of that word economically is intended to help emphasise that authorities may take into account non-financial matters such as social and environmental considerations. Another change that caught my eye is that many important provisions are relegated to schedules at the back of the bill. 
There are 11 schedules in total, and these cover key topics such as the grounds justifying direct awards without competition, bidder exclusion grounds, and permitted contract modifications. There is a risk, I suppose, that this extensive use of schedules will ultimately make the text less user-friendly, as readers will often need to scroll between the front and back ends of the Act in order to ascertain the full picture. I agree, Tim. That, that sort of change is really largely window dressing. For me, the most significant substantive change is the simplification and consolidation of award procedures. The current regulations provide for a rather confusing multitude of at least seven different award procedures. The simplest procedure of all, of course, is the open procedure. This is a single stage process in which there is no shortlisting and any interested party may submit a tender. The open procedure is retained under the bill, largely unchanged. However, all of the other current procedures will be abolished effectively. These include the restricted procedure, competitive dialogue, the competitive procedure with negotiation and innovation partnerships. In their place, the bill states that the contracting authority may use such other competitive tendering procedure as it considers appropriate. So authorities will be free to structure this so-called competitive tendering procedure largely as they see fit, provided they respect overriding principles such as equal treatment. In my view, this simpler, less regulated regime for award procedures will be a genuine improvement. The existing procedures are overlapping and confusingly similar in many ways. This applies in particular to the competitive dialogue procedure and the competitive procedure with negotiation. Trying to explain to clients the subtle differences between those two procedures is always a challenge. Adrian, I also spotted that clause 31 of the bill allows contracting authorities to make non-substantial modifications to the terms of a procurement at any time before the deadline for submitting tenders. In a similar vein, Clause 23 allows an authority to refine its award criteria at any time before it invites bidders to submit their tenders. These also appear to be laudable attempts to inject greater flexibility. Indeed. And another example relates to framework agreements. The bill retains most of the existing rules on framework agreements, including their prima facie maximum duration of four years. However, the bill also provides for a new option called open frameworks. These are described as successive frameworks on substantively the same terms, which may last for a total period of eight years. But that's subject to the important proviso that the framework must be reopened to competition at least once during its first three years, and then again once more in the subsequent five years. This new option appears on its face to introduce more flexibility. However, it is debatable whether such open frameworks actually offer any real improvement on the current possibility of awarding two or more successive frameworks of four years each. Another major recurring theme of the bill is the requirement for greater transparency. In particular, contracting authorities will be required to publish various new types of notice. Uh, in addition to renamed versions of the PINs, contract notices and award notices that have sorry, that already have to be published, the bill provides for a further seven types of notice that are entirely new. These include, for example, a preliminary market engagement notice, 
a transparency notice before any direct award, and a payment compliance notice confirming payment of the successful bidder within 30 days of invoice. The bill also provides that before entering into any contract worth more than £2 million, the contracting authority must set and publish at least three key performance indicators or KPIs. The authority must then publish an assessment against those KPIs at least every 12 months during the contract's term. Greater transparency has its merits, but these new publication requirements will impose a heavy administrative burden on contracting authorities. One of the government's stated aims in overhauling the regulations was to make the rules less bureaucratic, whereas these new publicity requirements will entail more red tape, not less. I agree, Tim. And on the subject of transparency, it is well established that under the current rules and case law, contracting authorities must send so-called debrief letters, also often called standstill letters or Alcatel letters, to unsuccessful tenderers. And then they must wait at least 10 calendar days before signing the contract with the winning bidder. Now, somewhat surprisingly, the Green Paper had proposed abandoning the requirement that authorities send such letters. The bill, however, requires authorities to send a so-called assessment summary to each tenderer, which sets out information about the authority's assessment of that party's tender and the tender of the winning bidder. Although the precise nature of the required information is not specified in the bill, this so-called assessment summary sounds very much like a debrief letter in all but name. The bill will also require the contracting authority to publish a contract award notice announcing that it intends to enter into the contract. The authority must then allow a mandatory standstill period of eight working days, that's instead of the current 10 calendar days, it must allow that period to elapse following publication of the contract award notice and before then entering into the contract with the winning bidder. Overall, therefore, the requirement for debriefing and standstill letters before contract award will be retained, albeit in a slightly different form. The required contents of the assessment summary and of the contract award notice are likely to be spelled out in secondary regulations. So that will be something to look out for. The subject of standstill letters brings us naturally on to the topic of remedies and potential court challenges by losing bidders. The current regulations lay down detailed rules on the rights of aggrieved bidders to challenge the decision of contracting authorities in the High Court. The government's Green Paper had proposed some quite radical ideas for shaking up the remedies regime. These included the introduction of a specialised procurement tribunal and a cap on the amount of damages awards. Subsequent to the consultation, however, the government has dropped those more radical elements. The bill now proposes only modest adjustments to the existing remedies regime. That's right, Tim. I think the most significant remaining changes relate to the automatic suspension on contract making. This automatic suspension arises whenever a claimant issues a claim form under the procurement regulations before the contract in question has been entered into. The contracting authority often then applies to court to get the automatic suspension lifted. Under the bill, the automatic suspension is retained, but will arise only if the claimant issues its claim form and, no and notifies the contracting authority of the claim within the standstill period. 
If the bidder fails to take these steps by the end of the eighth working day, so by the end of the standstill period, the authority is not prevented from entering into the contract. A further change in the bill is a newly worded test to be applied by the courts when deciding whether or not to lift the automatic suspension on contract making. At present, the courts apply a so-called balance of convenience test that's derived from an old case called American cyanamide. Under the new test put forward in the bill, courts would have to take into account three main factors. First, the public interest in ensuring compliance with procurement law. Second, the public interest again in avoiding delays to public contracts. And thirdly, the private interests of suppliers, including whether damages would be an adequate remedy for the claimant supplier. In reality, these changes are these matters are usually already taken into account under the existing balance of convenience test. So I don't foresee any major difference here. As at present, I expect that the public interest in avoiding a delay to the contract will often prevail, leading courts to lift the automatic suspension. The last subject I wanted to cover is contract modifications. Parties frequently wish to modify the terms of a public contract during its term, particularly when they're a long-term contract, and we are often asked to advise on whether such changes are permissible. Under Regulation 72 of the current Public Contracts Regulations, a substantial modification of an existing public contract during its term is treated as the award of a new contract. In principle, the modified contract needs to be put back out to tender unless one of the exemptions in Regulation 72 applies. The equivalent rules are now found in clauses 69 to 71 and Schedule 8 of the Bill. The rules remain broadly similar to the current regime, but with some adjustments. All of the existing exemptions have been retained in Schedule 8, albeit with some amendments to their wording. Exemptions still apply, for example, where the potential modification was unambiguously provided for in the initial contract, or where the modification has become necessary due to unforeseeable circumstances, or where additional services or works cannot be provided by a different supplier due to disproportionate technical difficulties. Schedule 8 of the bill also creates an entirely new category of permitted modification headed materialization of a known risk. This exemption applies where, one, a known risk has materialized without this being the fault of either the authority or the supplier. Two, this event means that the original contract can no longer be performed to the satisfaction of the authority. And three, awarding a new contract would not be in the public interest. Remains to be seen whether this rather vaguely worded new exemption ground will prove useful in practice. Finally, according to clause 71 of the bill, before modifying a public contract, the authority must first publish a contract change notice. In this notice, the authority may choose to specify a voluntary standstill period during which it will not enter into the modification. Although not compulsory, the authority uh, may choose to do this in order to flush out any legal challenges before concluding the contract modification. Tim, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. So, so if I may, I will just make a few final observations. Overall, 
I find the bill does deliver upon most of the changes foreseen in the green paper. Some of those proposed changes, such as the proposed consolidation of award procedures, are genuine improvements and very welcome in my view. Many of the other changes, however, are somewhat cosmetic in nature and do not fundamentally change the substance. In my view, the sheer length and complexity of the bill, which runs to well over 100 pages of tightly packed rules, does call into question whether the government has achieved its original stated aims of simplifying the procurement rules and making them less burdensome for both the public sector and its suppliers. Thank you, Adrian. As noted earlier, the Procurement Bill is expected to enter into force as the Procurement Act at some point in 2023. In the meantime, we will continue to monitor the bill's progress closely as it makes its way through the parliamentary process. We hope that this Herbert Smith Three Hills podcast has provided some interesting insights on the Procurement Bill. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Goodbye. Goodbye.